Hey, Keystoners. Welcome back to Keystone State of Mind. It's me, Steph, your tour guide to the dark side of Pennsylvania. It's 2022, bitches, and season three of KSOM. It is cold AF in Northern Pennsylvania. To my dear listeners in warmer climates, I envy you. It was two degrees when I left the house this morning. And I think it's nine out right now. So if you hear a little extra noise, that is my space heater because I'm fucking freezing. The only good thing about these really cold days is a little trick that I have. Because my closet in the studio is so cold, I can just put cans of Keystone Light in there and I don't have to run to the fridge every time. So that's kind of cool, I guess. Before we get started with today's episode, I have a couple of quick announcements. The first one is really for my local Keystoners. It's about a spaghetti dinner benefit that's going to be held January 23rd. This spaghetti dinner is to benefit a good friend of mine who has been battling ovarian cancer. The event will be held January 23rd. That's this coming Sunday as I'm recording this. From 2 to 5 at the Sons of Italy on Desmond Street in Sayre. Dinner tickets are $10. There's going to be basket raffles, 50-50, and a grand prize drawing. If anybody is interested in more information, I will put the link to the Facebook event in the show notes. Next, I want to share with you guys a promo for another podcast that I really think you'll like. It's called Old Timey Crimey. It's old timey crimey. Do you like true crime? Do you like history? Do you think murder's just better in black and white? Come join us on Old Timey Crimey, where every week we sit down and talk about a crime that history forgot. Or maybe a crime that history can't get enough of. From the classics like Jack the Ripper and Lizzie Borden. To the crimes you may have never heard of, like the Tottenham Outrage or the criminal lives of popes. We dig deep into the archives to give you the details you won't get anywhere else. Because the good old days weren't always so good. Find Old Timey Crimey wherever you listen to your podcasts. Okay, guys, for the first time in 2022, let's get into a Keystone State of Mind. As always, I'll be enjoying an ice-cold can of Keystone Light while I tell you today's story. On October 20th, 1997, 44-year-old Jennifer Myers was shot and killed in her art studio in Spring Grove, Pennsylvania. 39-year-old Kevin Dowling was swiftly arrested for the crime. Dowling was out on bail, awaiting trial for the earlier sexual assault of Jennifer Myers. So he was the obvious suspect. But Dowling had a rock-solid alibi. A time-stamped video of himself 
40 miles away at the time of the crime. So did he do it? And if he did, how did he pull it off? Jennifer Myers was 44 years old at the time of her murder. She was the mother to two grown daughters and a grandmother of one. She and her husband, Stephen, met in high school and had been married for over two decades. Jennifer owned and operated the Gray Fox Art Gallery in Spring Grove, Pennsylvania. Jennifer was an artist, but the focus of the Gray Fox was actually custom framing. And Jennifer was pretty well known in the small town for this craft. On the afternoon of August 5th, 1996, Jennifer was alone in her studio when a man walked in. He was wearing dark sunglasses and holding a gun. The assailant demanded all of the money in the cash register. Now, if you're thinking like me, robbing an art studio in the small town of Spring Grove may not be the wisest burglary decision. I'm sure there wasn't all that much money in the till. But our robber wasn't after money. His objective when entering the Gray Fox Gallery that day was actually to sexually assault Jennifer Myers. After she willingly handed over all of the money from the register, the man grabbed her and held her at gunpoint while pushing her into a more secluded part of the studio. There, he tied Jennifer up with rope that he brought with him and then began to violently grope her, at the same time trying to remove her clothes. Jennifer was obviously screaming in terror, but the attacker told her to shut up or he would kill her. So she complied. But Jennifer was actually expecting a delivery that day. And the delivery man walked in in the middle of this attack. The assailant was spooked by the delivery man opening the back door. So he took off out through the front door into the parking lot of the strip mall where the Gray Fox was located. Jennifer obviously immediately called the police and they showed up and canvassed the area. The attacker was long gone, but the police spoke to shoppers and employees at the other stores in the strip mall. But no one saw this guy or the car he was driving. Even the delivery man didn't get a glimpse of him. So all they had to go on was Jennifer's description of this crazy lunatic. Jennifer said he was like an average-looking white guy. Average height, average weight, and she really wasn't able to see any, like, identifying characteristics. 
But she was able to give a pretty detailed description of the sunglasses that the man was wearing. And she was able to definitively say that she did not recognize this guy. The police actively pursued this investigation, but they really didn't have much to go on. They looked at like local sex offenders and shit like that, but found nothing. This is also 1996 in a small town with just over 2,000 residents and a very low crime rate. So most businesses did not have security cameras. The rope that Jennifer was tied up with was sent for forensic testing, but once again, it's 1996. So touch DNA was not a thing. And because the assailant was not able to complete the act, no fluids were exchanged. So pretty quickly, the investigation hit a dead end. Although Jennifer was not physically injured, we can imagine that she was probably traumatized. And as time goes on and her attacker is still out there, it had to be just nerve wracking. Four months went by without any new leads in the case. But in December of 1996, Jennifer walked into a Sheets convenience store in the nearby town of Hanover. She picked out her items and went up to the counter, and the man behind the cash register greeted her. She instantly recognized his voice as that of her attacker back in August. I don't know what Jennifer did in that moment. There's no reporting on that. But can you fucking imagine, like, for four months, this man has been out there, a man who tried to rape you, and then you fucking run into him at the local convenience store? Like, did she go on with her purchase and, like, pay for her items and calmly walk out? Or did she, like, fucking beat him in the face with her Coke Zero or whatever like, what would you do? What? I don't even know what I would do. Would I be terrified and run? Or would I fucking freak out and jump across that counter and whip that guy's ass when there's really nothing he can do, you know, when now I have the upper hand? I'd like to think that I would do the latter, but I don't know. Probably I would just run away crying like a little girl. We don't know what Jennifer did inside the store, but we do know that when she left, she immediately called the police. Detective Arthur Smith responded to this call, and he went to the Sheets convenience store to talk to this guy. This guy was 39-year-old Kevin Brian Dowling. Kevin Brian. Guys. What's with the like similar sounding last syllables of first and middle names? I don't love it. That'd be like if my name was Stephanie Katie, which is not. My name is Stephanie Jane, whatever. But I don't know why people do that. 
no shade, I guess, but it's just not my favorite. But anyways, Kevin Bryan, Dowling, was questioned about the earlier attack on Jennifer Myers, which he, of course, denied any knowledge of. Detective Smith then asked Dowling if he had any weapons on him. Dowling said that he didn't have any on him, but he did have a loaded handgun in his car. I don't know if Dowling had a permit, like a carry permit, to legally have this gun in his car. But I have not come across any documentation, even in the court records, where he was ever charged with like an illegal possession of a firearm offense or anything like that. So I don't know. I guess he was driving around with a loaded handgun legally. But if the loaded handgun and Jennifer's identification of him was not enough for an arrest, the police found more. In Dowling's car was a pair of sunglasses that matched Jennifer's description of her assailant sunglasses. There was also rope matching the rope that Jennifer was tied up with. And there was a newspaper that was folded to the page of an article about the attack on Jennifer. So with all this circumstantial evidence, Detective Smith arrested Kevin Bryan, Dowling, on suspicion of attempted rape. This is where I want to tell you guys about one of my main sources. This was season two, episode 10 of American Monster on Discovery+. Plus. American Monster is actually a fucking amazing show. I think there's like seven or eight seasons and each episode covers, you know, a murder. My shit. You get it. But this episode was all about Kevin Dowling and the murder of Jennifer Myers. But it was told from the perspective of Kevin Dowling's wife. She was interviewed on this show and kind of told her side of the story and what she went through with all of this. The show did not go into Jennifer Meyer's life at all. It really barely spoke about the victim of the murder. But that's kind of a running theme with this story because I was unable to find anything about Jennifer Meyer's life other than what I've already told you. There's an episode of Forensic Files on this case that barely talks about Jennifer. And any of the articles that I found barely talk about Jennifer. It kind of makes me wonder if her family opted to keep her story private, which is totally fair. Like, absolutely. But also, it could be the later aspects of the case that we're going to get into that kind of overshadows Jennifer's possibly average life. So I'm going to be talking a lot about 
the Dowling family and very little about the Myers family. But that's only because I don't have any more information about them. But we're going to see that Kevin Dowling's wife and kids were secondary victims to this crime. Kevin Dowling's wife's name is Joanne. They met in 1984. Within a couple of years, they got married and had two little girls who they adored. According to Joanne, she and Kevin had a loving relationship. Kevin was a good father and a good provider. He worked hard so that Joanne could stay home with the children, which is something that she enjoyed. It wasn't a power play or a control move. This is what Joanne wanted. And Kevin really worked hard to give her that opportunity to stay home and raise her kids. Now, one thing about this show, American Monster, is the stories are told using a lot of home video footage. Now, normally, in most of the other episodes, this is home video footage of the victim. But in this case, it's home video footage of the murder suspect and his family. So we get to see Kevin Dowling and his wife and two daughters at Disneyland in 1993. These little girls are adorable. Like at the time they were like eight and 10 and they're just like cute, funny little kids. And I don't based on this one video, which of course they're on vacation, whatever. But like Joanne definitely did not seem to be a battered spouse or a controlled woman by any means. And according to her own interviews in the show, she wasn't. They were happy and they had a very healthy marriage. Kevin was attentive to his children and helped with household chores as well as going to work every day. In 1995, three big things happened for the Dowling family. First, Kevin got a better job as the manager of a Sheets convenience store. Not everyone would think this is a great job, but for Kevin and Joanne, this was a definite step up. This new job led to the second big event for the Dowling family in 1995, and that was when they were able to purchase their first home. The house was in East Petersburg, Pennsylvania, which for reference is about 30 miles away from Spring Grove, where Jennifer Myers Art Gallery was located. And the purchase of this home made things a lot more comfortable when, in November of 1995, Joanne gave birth to their third child and their first son. As far as Joanne was concerned, they were on track. Like, everything was going great. So, 
in December of 1996, when she hears that her husband has been arrested on suspicion of attempted rape, she's like, oh, no, 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 no. You're fucking mistaken. And at first, like, she was like, okay, you know, this is a misunderstanding. It's all going to get figured out. Like, we'll, we'll take care of it. But then when Kevin was charged with sexual assault and armed robbery and put in jail, she was fucking pissed. Not at Kevin, but at the police. Like, you're wrong. It wasn't him. And now you're just making my fucking life difficult. She was pissed. That's not to say that Joanne was unsympathetic to what Jennifer Myers had gone through, but her mindset was like, you've got the wrong guy. Go find the real attacker and leave my family alone. But the investigators were sure that they had their man. Kevin was charged with these crimes and put in jail. He was given bail. I'm not sure what the bail amount was. I don't know what the Dowling family had to sacrifice to get Kevin out of jail, but they did either way. The trial was scheduled for October 22nd, 1997. So there's a lot of time in between here, like 10 months from the time Kevin was arrested until he's, you know, going to go to trial. So I'm sure that was an incredibly stressful time for the Dowling family, especially since Kevin got fired from his job at Sheets the same day he was arrested at Sheets. By the way, for our out-of-middle Pennsylvania listeners, Sheets is like a chain convenience store. And it's just a fucking regular convenience store or whatever, but they make food that sucks. But Sheets is spelled S-H-E-E-T-Z. And so everything on their menu, like they try to be cutesy with shit. So like everything that would end in an S actually ends in a Z on their menu or like in their store anywhere. And another weird thing they do is they put SH in front of random words like they have this breakfast melt and they call it a breakfast schmelt. Like, bro, I'm not eating anything called a schmelt. Thank you. But that's their deal. Whatever. I do go to a sheets very often because it's like right next to my work and they sell beer. So whatever. KSOM Season 3, brought to you by Sheets. Just kidding. They would not appreciate that ad. But Sheets fired Kevin from his managerial position when he was arrested in their parking lot. He was shmarrested. Okay, that was lame. I don't care. I'm keeping it in. 
After being fired from Sheets, Kevin had a really hard time finding another job. Yeah, I fucking bet. Sexual assault suspect does not look good on your Indeed profile. Kevin fell into a deep depression and, according to Joanne, could barely get out of bed. So Joanne had to actually go out and get a job for the first time in her married life. She got a fairly decent job as the inventory manager at a convenience store. I don't know if that convenience store was Sheets or not. I'm going to bet not. Irrelevant to the story. As the trial date was approaching, Kevin was continuing to deteriorate mentally, but he was able to find an overnight shift job. On October 20th, two days before the trial was set to begin, Kevin decided to take a little day trip. He was going fishing on Muddy Run Lake. He thought that this may be the last time he would be able to enjoy a day of fishing for a long while. He brought along his home video camera. At Muddy Run Lake, Kevin rented a rowboat. In the boat, he set up a tripod with his video camera and began recording himself. In this video, he was speaking to his family. It would be like one last memory of him if he was found guilty and sent to prison for the attack on Jennifer. While Kevin was enjoying a serene day on the lake and recording a message to his family, a grisly scene was unfolding back in Spring Grove. At about 3 p.m. on October 20th, Jennifer's husband, Stephen, walked in to the Gray Fox Art Gallery to check on his wife. This is something that he'd been doing every day since her attack. When he got out of work, he headed to the Gray Fox to make sure Jennifer was okay. But on this day, she wasn't. He found her dead from three gunshot wounds. She'd been shot in the shoulder, in the chest, and through her left eye. Stephen made a frantic 911 call at 3.04 p.m., and the police were on scene within minutes. Once again, they canvassed the area of the strip mall and talked to customers and employees in the other stores. Some of these people had actually witnessed something strange at the Gray Fox Gallery. Numerous people reported hearing three loud pops at around 1 p.m. Other witnesses saw the assailant as he ran from the gallery. They described him as wearing a black scraggly wig and a baseball cap, as well as a blue flannel shirt. The man then jumped into a light-colored sedan and sped out of the parking lot. He was driving so erratically that he nearly hit a pedestrian with his car. Now, after seeing all of this, 
none of these witnesses called the police or went to the Gray Fox to check on Jennifer or to see like, hey, what the fuck just happened here? Like everybody's just like, oh, that was weird. Hmm. Suspicious. Let me get back to my grocery shopping. This is just a good reminder for all of us that if you see something, say something. As the investigation is getting underway at the strip mall, Kevin Dowling is just getting home from his day at the lake. He was really excited to show his family this video that he made. So when he got home, he popped it in the VCR and the whole family sat around and watched it together. Joanne thought at the time that this was a really nice gesture, like a thoughtful thing that Kevin did for his family in case he did go to prison. After watching the video, the family had dinner together and Kevin got around for his overnight shift. He changed out of his fishing clothes and into his work clothes and left for the night. A couple hours later, it's like the middle of the night and Joanne's in bed when her phone rings. And it is homicide investigators calling. They said, um, yeah, we're right outside and we're going to need you to open the door. We have to talk to you. Joanne was fucking livid. She's like, dickheads, I'm fucking sleeping. It's the middle of the night. What could you possibly want? That's when they informed her that Jennifer Myers had been murdered earlier that day. Joanne's like, hold up. You got to see this. And she hands them the videotape that Kevin made. Like, this is his alibi. He wasn't anywhere near Spring Grove. He was at Muddy Run Lake. And the police are like, mm, yeah, we'll be having that tape. Thank you. Can we also have the clothes that he was wearing earlier today? Joanne's like, absolutely. Here you go. Because she's, of course, thinking they're going to find no evidence on any of these things. But the police did find evidence. There was gunpowder residue on the shirt that Kevin had been wearing earlier that day. His blue flannel shirt. Kevin was also positively identified by the witness that he had nearly run over in the parking lot when trying to flee the crime scene. When police later searched Kevin's car, they found even more evidence. A letter from Kevin to Jennifer asking for her forgiveness. So it's all looking really bad for Kevin Dowling. But he has this videotaped alibi. The tape had a time and date stamp visible through the entire thing. If that time and date stamp is to be believed, Kevin was 40 miles away at Muddy Run Lake fishing and recording a message to his family. But the police were not convinced. There was a couple things about this tape that really made them question its validity. First, Kevin claimed to be out on the lake fishing for like five or six hours, but the entirety of the videotape was only 15 minutes long. Kevin would press record and talk for a few minutes while he was casting his line and reeling it in. And then he would press stop 
and move his boat to another part of the lake and turn it on again for another minute or two. So that was the first thing that police found fishy. You see what I did there? Okay. Also, Kevin really did not seem to be concentrating on fishing at all. He was just kind of mindlessly casting and reeling the entire time and never caught anything or even paid attention to what he was doing. What they did notice that Kevin was paying attention to was his watch. He continuously looked at his watch through this video, like once or twice a minute. So they're like, okay, you know, he's definitely not focused on fishing here. He's focused on the time. So police knew that Kevin had manipulated the timestamp on this tape. For our younger Keystoners, these old-timey video cameras from the 90s did give the option to display the time and date on the video itself. But this was something that you had to set manually. I remember on our video camera when I was a kid, like, that was not an easy feat. It was complicated. You needed like a fucking degree in computer science to figure it out. All the videotapes from my family when I was young had that time and date stamp, but it was always just flashing zeros in the corner because nobody could ever figure out how to turn it off or set it properly. So it was possible to change it, but kind of a pain in the ass. But Kevin used his video camera a lot. So he was well-versed in its features. And if you're trying to create an alibi for a murder that you committed, well, then I think he'll go to great lengths to figure it out. The tape was first sent to the Pennsylvania State Police audiovisual investigator people. They were able to determine that the tape hadn't been like physically altered, but they had no way of knowing whether or not the date and timestamp were accurate. So the investigators stepped out of the box a little bit and contacted a guy named Dr. Robert Boyle. He was an astronomer and a consultant to NASA. So this guy knows his shit. And they say to him, like, hey, we've got this video. Can you look at it and tell by, like, you know, the shadows or whatever, what time it was actually shot on, you know, this given day? Dr. Boyle's like, yeah, of course, I got this. Don't worry about it. But then he started watching the video and seeing exactly how complicated this was going to be because Kevin Dowling is in a boat on a lake and the boat is moving in all directions. And it's really hard for him to like pinpoint where these shadows should be at a given time of day when the camera is moving so much or whatever. There was also nothing significant about the weather that day to say, okay, they're, you know, at such and such a time, these storm clouds rolled in or anything like that. Dr. Boyle analyzed this video for over six months. He sent investigators out to the lake to take photographs from the vantage point of where Kevin was in that boat on October 20th. Dr. Boyle used complicated calculations as well as low-tech 
experiments to determine the validity of the timestamp. He actually built a little wooden man and a little wooden boat and put it under a lamp to see how the shadows would move. When Dr. Boyle was done with this video, he determined that the timestamps were false. They had been altered. And Kevin Dowling was not at Muddy Run Lake at 1 o'clock in the afternoon on October 20th, 1997, when Jennifer Myers was murdered. After this news came out, Kevin changed his story. And he said, yes, I did alter the timestamp, but not because I was murdering Jennifer. No, no, no. I went to Harrisburg to go to a strip club and I didn't want my wife to know. So, yeah, that's all. I was just watching naked ladies, man. Chill out. Typical criminal move. When you get caught in a lie, you just make it like you were doing something less gross, right? Like, no, I wasn't murdering anyone. I was just over there selling drugs. It was drugs. That's why I lied. Or it was naked ladies. That's why I lied. Like, fucking dummies. When you busted, you busted. Kevin was arrested and charged with first-degree murder. He was sent to jail without bail. And his wife, Joanne, was left at home to pick up the pieces. The anger that she had felt towards the police department had now been replaced with just complete devastation. The investigators showed her the facts. Joanne finally had to accept the fact that it was true. Her husband sexually assaulted and murdered Jennifer Myers. I really felt for Joanne when I watched the American Monster documentary. Joanne was very brutally honest throughout the whole show about how she was feeling and what she was going through. And when she finally vocalized, like, my husband killed Jennifer Myers, she broke down and cried. And it nearly brought a tear to my eye. That rarely happens to me with true crime stuff because I'm so jaded. I've seen so much of it, it doesn't affect me anymore. But that kind of did, and it's going to stick with me. Joanne and her three children were also victims of Kevin Dowling. He did not attack them or hurt them or abuse them. But his crimes affected them as much as. They affected Jennifer Myers' family. This was a man that they shared their lives with, their husband, their father, a man that they trusted implicitly and put so much faith in. And not only was he ripped from their lives, but they also had to accept the fact that he was a fucking monster. Like, imagine what it would take to come to terms with something like that. Joanne is a badass. I love her. She immediately filed for divorce and never spoke to Kevin again. Joanne and her oldest daughter did attend Kevin's trial, but not to support him. They were only there because the oldest daughter was called to testify. 
she was there to testify against her father, saying that that black wig that he had been seen wearing the day of the murder was actually hers. She had it for a Halloween costume a couple of years earlier. There were pictures of the little girl wearing this wig. Kevin was found guilty at trial, and he was sentenced to death. His automatic appeals went through and they were denied, but he was given a stay of execution before the moratorium on the death penalty in Pennsylvania. So he'll probably just die in prison and not be executed. Kevin has always maintained his innocence. Yeah, fucking course he has. What's he going to be like? No, it was me. After I went through all this shit. No, it was actually me. Ah, I got you. No, he maintains his innocence. He's actually written a couple of things from prison that have been published on the internet. One of these articles is called Forensic Files Falsehoods by Kevin Brian Dowling. It's like a one page website. And it goes over everything in the Forensic Files episode about this case. And then Kevin disputes like all of the things. Whatever. I'm not even going to go into it. I, I didn't read much of it because he's full of shit. He's full of shit. And I don't care. But he also wrote an essay that was published on humanrights.org. Human W-R-I-T-E-S where I guess you can submit your writings or whatever. And it was published on there. And it's an essay called My Last Day on Earth. I was going to read it on the episode, but it's pretty dumb and it's long and I'm just not gonna. I don't know how he's like submitting this shit to the internet, but he is. And as a matter of fact, there is a Facebook page dedicated to Kevin Dowling's innocence. This Facebook page is called Free Kevin Brian Dowling. It was created in 2013, and the last post was from January 12th, 2021. I actually reached out to whoever is running this Facebook page, sent a private message to say, okay, who is running this? And like, what's your deal? You know, what's going on? And they never responded. So whatever. I guess they don't care too much. They could have gotten some exposure. Anyways, they never responded. So the case is closed, but no motive has ever been uncovered. Before this, Kevin Dowling had no criminal record. And he'd never been known to be violent to anyone, especially not women. The district attorney in this case believes that Kevin stalked Jennifer Myers. He chose her as his victim. And it's really hard for people to believe that a guy could just fucking snap like that. It's hard for me to believe. But what are our alternatives here? Either one, Kevin did not commit either crime. That makes no sense because if someone else committed the sexual assault, and then they knew that Kevin Dowling was going to trial for it. Why would they kill the star witness, Jennifer Myers, who believed it was Kevin Dowling? Another scenario is that 
Kevin did not commit the sexual assault, but he still opted to kill Jennifer Myers? That doesn't make any sense either. That's a big leap to take to try to get out of a sexual assault rap. And three, like the only logical explanation is that Kevin committed both crimes. Even after living a law-abiding life. What made him do it? We'll never know. Because he'll never admit it. But a confession from him is unnecessary. Because he's already convicted and he's going to spend the rest of his life in prison. So, deuces, sucka. What do you guys think? Should I make some deuces, sucka merch? I'm always trying to think of a tagline, like something I say that I could turn into some merch. I don't know. I think I say deuces, sucka often enough, right? You gotta let me know on the KSOM Keystoneers Facebook group, or you can email me, Keystone State of Mind, the pod at gmail.com. You can message me. You guys know how to get a hold of me. Let me know if you want Deuces Saka merch. I'd wear it. Anyways, happy 2022 and stay Keystone, my friends. Mm-hmm.